How do we calculate the value of union, and is secession the answer? We'll talk about this on episode 765 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Hey, if you're looking to support the show financially, the best way to do it is McClanahanAcademy.com. McClanahanAcademy.com. It's my educational website, and it's a fantastic resource. You've got over 20 classes available for purchase there, and that's how you support this show financially. You get great content, and you keep this podcast free of charge. All this free content, 700-plus episodes, are made possible by things like McClanahan Academy. And I've got a new live class, uh, American Slavery, starts this week. If you're listening to this podcast, in fact, the last day to register is tomorrow. So... If you want to get in on it, you need to do that now. If you're on the email list, and you do that by going to brianmcclanahan.com, that's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com, give me that email address, you'll get a free ebook. you also get on the email list, or if you enroll at McClanahan Academy, it's free of charge, get that free class, 10, ma- 10 Myths excuse me, of American History, if you do enroll, free of charge, and you get on that email list. If you do that, you're going to get the coupon, and of course, that's how you get the deal on the class, $200 off by doing that. The class starts in two days. You got to enroll by tomorrow if you want to get in on it. And you get me live four times during that process. So when I say live, you can ask me questions. I go cover the material. I do all kinds of things. It's, it's a great way to interact with me in a way that you can't do if you're just watching this on YouTube or listening on the podcast. So um, you know, make sure that you enroll at McClanahanAcademy.com. All right, well, let's talk about the topic and... There was a piece that came out in National Review last week by Miles Smith. Now, Miles Smith is uh, he's a professor at Hillsdale College, and he's a, he's a good guy. And uh, he's a Southerner, and I like looking at what he posts on social media and reading what he writes generally. Uh, this piece was interesting because he makes a couple of statements, and I said it on social media. I said he makes some mistakes in the piece. But I do, first of all, let me start with where I agree with Miles Smith on this piece. And I mentioned at the, in the cold open that, you know, are we, how do we calculate the value of union? Is union that important? Sometimes I think we do forget how important union was to the founding generation. Now, they talked a lot about secession, disunion. Uh, If the union did not do what it should do, how do they have any recourse for that? They, They made sure particularly in Virginia and New York, that there was some type of out if the union became abusive, if the government, the general government became abusive. They had just gone through a war for independence that was based on uh, resistance to what they considered to be an abusive central authority. But they all loved the idea and the value that a union presented. So, for example, if you take Virginia and go look at St. George Tucker, St. George Tucker wrote uh, a long treatise on Blackstone, I mean, Blackstone's commentaries, and he wrote a commentary on the Constitution. He, he was a prolific legal scholar in Virginia. He was anti-slavery. He was John Randolph of Roanoke's stepfather. Uh, the Tuckers in Virginia and the Tuckers in South Carolina were very important Republicans with a lowercase r. These people were jealous of civil liberties. 
They believed in a limited central authority. Tucker maintains in his commentaries that the resumption clause that Virginia made conditional to ratification ensured that Virginia could secede from the Union if the central government became abusive, if it abused its powers. And we know that uh, Jefferson, Madison in Virginia, and a host of others in Virginia thought the same thing. We know that uh, Jefferson had actually written an exchange with John Taylor of Caroline, who certainly was uh, the most Jeffersonian of all the pamphleteers, about potential New England secession. This is a, a series of letters in 1798, not long before the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions were written and then uh, passed in the respective state legislatures, that were, were on, was on the issue of secession and, and the problem with New England. And this is where Jefferson famously said that New England rides us very hard, right? They're, they are... Uh, they're abusing the South, essentially abusing Virginia. And Taylor had remarked that you know, there was some talk of secession. Now, Taylor had already been confronted with this just a few years earlier when Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth confronted Taylor in a cloakroom in the Senate when Taylor was in the Senate and said, look, how about we just break this thing up now? We know that we're a political minority. We can't get what we want. Let's just have independence. And Taylor wrote about that, and he was shocked. Now he's writing about it again. And Jefferson's response essentially was, we need to vote better. We need to vote better. And to Taylor, that wasn't enough. Taylor thought that there needed to be some structural changes put in place to ensure that any minority, whether it was New England or Virginia or the South, whatever it was, would have some type of progression, uh, protection excuse me, in this central authority to, to, so that it could maintain its independence and its control over its own internal affairs. This was the real issue. Nobody wanted one section controlling the government. The South didn't want that. New England didn't want that. The Mid-Atlantic states didn't want that. So Taylor actually came up with some proposals. I wrote about this about three years ago, four years ago, in fact, now, at the Abbeville Institute. Um, and it's this exchange, this, this exchange between the two men. So you had open discussion about what Jefferson called a scission. He didn't call it secession. He called it a scission. And these people were all familiar with this with church matters. I mean, this is where you had it first and foremost before this, when you had split in churches. And you saw that, scissions. Now, you also saw it, of course, with the American War for Independence. And Jefferson had would eventually speak about this in his inaugural address. Um, he would certainly be open to the idea later on in life of having uh, you know, these independent republics in the West, he was not against secession. He wasn't an open exponent of it. He didn't explicitly say, we need to secede. But he was not necessarily against it either. And he always was interested in the value of union. So you look at someone like John, I'm sorry, uh, Edmund Randolph of Virginia. I was going to say John Randolph. I always have John Randolph on the brain. But Edmund Randolph of Virginia who famously opposed the Constitution in Philadelphia and then got back to Virginia and somehow did a 180. And the reason he did a 180 is because he started to see that there could be a loss of union, that Virginia was going to try to go its own way. And he was worried about that. He was worried about the potential for disunion, which is why he supported the Constitution. It's all over his speeches that he gives in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He was 
more in favor of a union than a disunion because he thought a disunion would produce all kinds of ruin for Virginia. He didn't care about everything else. He cared about Virginia. He didn't think Virginia could go alone. He thought that if there was disunion, you would have, of course, the British and the French become very much involved in the United States, what was the United States, and now a fractured United States, and you would see potential for wars. You would see the British try to reacquire, say, New England, and he thought that was a distinct possibility, that they would try to reacquire New England, and then, of course, you would be back in the same situation we were in in 1775 and 1776, and they would try to reacquire Virginia at that point. So he thought union was much more important than any of the arguments made against the Constitution. He thought they could work those things out and that somehow the promises being made that we would have a limited central authority would hold, that we wouldn't have an abusive central government. So the value of union was very important to these people. And that's where Miles Smith is going in this, even today. And I've said this in a podcast recently. I'm not so certain Americans are ready for secession at this point. The economic dislocation would be tremendous. The political disruption would also be uh, something that people would be be used to it, right? I mean, they, they would be uneasy about this. So there would be some growing pains in this. And one thing I find fascinating about Smith in this piece is he points right back at the South. And that's because generally the the group making the largest noise right now about secession is Texas. And Texas has a huge economy. If there's any places in the United States that could easily pull off an independence movement, I think there are solely and individually an independence movement, there are essentially three places, Florida, Texas, and California. Florida, because it has a large population, a robust economy. Its location, it has, you know, it has access to anything because of because of uh, you know seaports. It can get just about anything it wants internationally. Texas and California have the same thing, right? So you got Texas with access to the Gulf of Mexico. Same thing with Florida plus Florida with access to the Atlantic. You've got California with access to the Pacific, and all of these states have large populations and large economies. And they could pull it off. Now, of course, you've got people like Kirkpatrick Sale saying that you don't don't need a large state to pull this off. You don't need to be a state that's not landlocked to pull it off. Sale has done a lot of work on this with the Middlebury Institute and the size of states and access to things. And so he thinks that any of this would work anywhere. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. But in terms of an immediate, the least amount of shock, it would be these states. And so if you're in those states, California, Texas, Florida, the people of those states would have to calculate the value of the union. Could Texas go its own way and be a strong, vibrant, independent economy? Could it have a strong military? Could it have a strong political system? All those things are definitively yes. Texas could do that. California could do that. Florida could do that. All of it. I don't think we realize how large these states actually are in terms of population and how big their economies are. And if you had unions develop, say, in New England or in the South or somewhere else, Alaska could also go its own way. So could Hawaii, by the way. I, I forgot to mention, because, again, of access and what they have, natural resources, they could also be independent. Hawaii, of course, is a pretty large ethnic minority that could uh, certainly support independence, and that's why the Hawaiian Independence Party is so popular there. Um, Alaska, you know, you get Sarah Palin's uh, ex-husband, who uh, would believe the same thing. Uh, He was part of the Alaska Independence Party. So you certainly have these things with states. 
You could also have, again, unions, say New England or a, a union on the West Coast where you get Oregon and Washington aligned with California. All these things could, could happen. Uh, again, I'm not so certain everybody is ready for the set. And I know people point out, well, you've got these large percentages of people that have said they want independence. And I agree. Look, there's more and more interest in this issue now than ever before. Than ever before. Uh, except for 1860. You've got more people that are interested in a potential for independence of their state than in any time in American history except 1860. And look, we had secession movements at other times. And what I find interesting about this piece is he does bring up some of that. He makes a couple of mistakes. So let me get into the piece and uh, talk about uh, this Miles Smith piece at National Review. The the title of the piece is Secession uh, is Not the Answer. Right? Secession is Not the Answer. He says, the desire of some jurisdictions to leave a state or of a state to leave the union is unjustified, but government overreach can be the source of the the idea's appeal. That's kind of the subtitle of this. So he's saying all of this is unjustified at this point. He doesn't think there's any reason now for this. Now, this is one area I would disagree. I don't think it's unjustified at this point. We've seen a general government that abuses its power on a regular basis. And this was certainly enough Less abuse of power was certainly enough for the founding generation to get out of the British Empire. Less abuse of power was certainly enough for Southerners to consider secession in 1860 and 61. We've got massive federal overreach in all kinds of areas in the United States. Now, the general government generally follows the Constitution when it comes to structure, but then you can even make an argument they don't always do that when they create bureaucracy that has executive, judicial, and legislative powers uh, for these regulatory agencies. You've got to the deep state. You've got the court, the federal courts that maybe overstep their jurisdiction. You've got all kinds of things going on that certainly 150 years ago or 200 years ago or 250 years ago, these things would not have been tolerated. And I mean that. I mean, the founding generation and the third generation of Americans, which would, is oftentimes called the blundering generation, wouldn't have tolerated these things. But we do. And some of that it has to do with the fact that I think Americans are generally more decadent. They don't want the disruption, the economic disruption. They don't want the political uh, disruption. And we've been told, even as this piece does, that all of this is illegal anyways. That's my main argument against this piece. So he says, in one of the lesser covered stories at the close of 2022, San Bernardino County voted to allow its citizens to consider seceding from California. Years of progressive misrule and rising prices have led to civil and social discontentment with the California state government in this diverse county of 2.2 million people. That's a lot of people. 2.2 million people is a lot of people. So, um, So the county said we can vote on this. Now, again, there's an issue here. Uh, counties or corporate entities of the state. The state would have to allow this to happen. To have a state formed within a state, you have to get the permission of not only the state legislature, but also the Congress. It's not going to happen. I mean, this is a pipe dream. It's a pipe dream. Now, you can have the, you have the greater Idaho movement, which actually is not a pipe dream because, as people have pointed out, and I think they're accurate about this, you're simply moving a border. You're just saying this is now the border of California, or this is the border of Idaho, whatever it is, or Washington, what, you know, whatever we're going to do here with that greater Idaho movement. We're going to move the border. 
and um, we're going we're gonna to allow some other people into the state of Idaho that would have been part of another state. So you're not creating a new state, you're simply moving a border. And if the states agree to it, then there really isn't much to stop that. So that's a way you can restructure states and create, you know, a, kind of a, a halfway house between secession and creating a new state. It's something else. And it's perfectly legal, by the way. He says the, the actual likelihood of San Bernardino, San Bernardino County becoming a new state is comically small. Most of its citizens see the ballot proposal as an unserious publicity stunt. So does Kristen Washington, the local Democratic Party chairwoman. The option of actually seceding from that state is not even something that is realistic because of all the steps that actually go into it, she said. She's right about that, and probably right about the proposal being a form of partisan, partisan electioneering that has little to do with actual secession. After all, secession proposals aren't anything particularly new in California. The state has seen 20, 220 proposals for secession in some form or another come and go, and none of them got very far or were treated very seriously. San Bernardino's proposal isn't likely to be any different. Now, there is the Cal Exit movement, which, um, again, the people in the Cal Exit movement would actually have a problem with this piece, too, in one part of it. So Smith says, Corruption and oppressive bureaucracies in some states have prompted disaffected citizens to entertain the idea of secession, at least intellectually. In California, the far northeastern part of the state has in recent years threatened to leave the state. With older, whiter, and poorer residents in the rest of the state, the six counties warned the state that they'd secede if the state did not heed their complaints. The plan to form a new state of Jefferson or to join Idaho, along with some similarly disaffected counties in Oregon, hasn't amounted to much, though one in six residents of these northeastern counties appeared willing to entertain secession. Now again, what they're talking about here with joining Idaho is not really secession. It's moving the border. So you're leaving California, but you're joining Idaho, which is still part of the Union. Secession would have to be complete independence or creating a new state, uh, decentralizing the state of California. I mean, you'd have to do something like that. This isn't really secession. I mean, I guess technically it could be because you're leaving one place to another, a political secession, but um, you're moving the border in the greater Idaho situation. While it's still a small minority, it's not insignificant. Moreover, secession in California and Texas, where many proponents wish to leave the country entirely, and in other locales, largely in the West, is increasingly associated with political conservatives. Not in California. In fact, it's the left that's in charge of CalExit. It's the left that's interested in secession in California, Washington, and Oregon. It's the left that's interested in secession in Hawaii. It's the left. It was the left that was interested in secession in Vermont. You have leftists out there that want it. You have leftists out there that are calculating the value of union and seeing that someone like Joe Biden isn't enough. They'd want to, I mean, look, Joe Biden's proposal to ban gas stoves would already happen in California if the left had their way. They don't think that, that uh, the central government moves fast enough on these leftist proposals. They want to see more of it. I'm going to talk more about California, I think, either this week or next week. Uh, a piece that was sent to me. Um, about what California looks like now and what this says as a harbinger of the future for America. But anyways, it's the left that would do these things in California. So the, I, I, again, this is where I think Smith is wrong. The left is certainly pushing, pushing secession uh, in some of these areas, some of these places where they dominate the state governments. So then he says, since the Civil War, secession has been seen as anti-nationalistic and as a form of sensational political brinkmanship that died with the Confederate states at Appomattox. 
Save for a few holdouts in the southern states, America and both parties believed secession was no longer or had never been legal. Save for a few holdouts in the southern states. Now, um, I, I think, look, there was not just a few holdouts in the south. They vigorously defended the legal position of, of secession. Uh, they conceded after the war, many of them did, that uh, slavery was bad and that it's good that it's gone. Now, some didn't. I mean, some held on that slavery was fine and uh, you know, we ruined America by getting rid of it. There were some people that believed that. Uh, but for the most part, they never really said that they believed that what they did was illegal. They didn't really say that. I mean, look, Albert Taylor Bledsoe insisted to the day that he died that it was legal. And there were others that thought the same thing. That everything that had happened was legal. Alexander Stevens, Jefferson Davis, everything they did was legal. That's where you have all these people blast the myth of the quote-unquote myth of the lost cause, which is, I mean, really no myth. It's if you look at the term myth as a fabrication, a fairy tale. There's no fairy tale there. It was legal. This is the paragraph that I found the most, those two paragraphs, the, the, the most... Uh, uh, the most contentious, right, and uh, the worst in terms of the piece. He says, that has been the consensus of the American legal profession and constitutional experts as well. And then he cites two Australian academics. Now, if you're going to say this is the case, then at least cite a couple of Americans. Don't go to a couple of Australian academics who look at the 1869 Texas v. White case. And the reason the 1869 case did not solve anything is because the court actually did say secession was legal if you had consensus from the other states. Something that actually Jefferson had said, too, to John Taylor. Well, I mean, secession would be legal if the other states agreed to it. And this is exactly what they said in Texas v. White. You just can't have unilateral secession. But if the rest of the United States wanted to boot out California, for example, they could perfectly do it. They could say California is no longer in the Union. And this is what they said in Texas v. White. So they're not saying secession is not legal or never had been legal. There were certainly ways you could do it, but not unilateral, where you can have a popular elected convention say that we're out of the Union. And that's what happened in the South. Now, I would say that's perfectly legal because it's a reserved power of the states according to the Tenth Amendment. Australian academics Peter Radin and Alexander Pavkovic noted that in the 1869 case of Texas E. White, the Supreme Court, stacked with Republican justices picked by Abraham Lincoln, ruled that, quote, the Confederate state governments in Texas had no legal existence on the basis that the secession of Texas from the United States was illegal. According to these scholars, the court had underpinned the ruling that Texas could not secede from the United States by stating, quote, Texas had become part of an indestructible union composed of indestructible states. In practical terms, this meant that Texas had never seceded from the United States. That essentially was Chase's argument in Texas v. White. They just agreed with it. But Chase, of course, had a motivation. If he said the secession was legal, then the entire war was unjustified, right? So, I mean, they had to say this in 1869. And Smith does concede that in the next paragraph. He says, since the Supreme Court answered authoritatively that the states could not secede, Subsequent courts have affirmed that precedent. But again, this is a bad decision. And he does say that. But in 1869, the Supreme Court was full of members from the Republican Party and might be accused of being partisan. Of course it was. 
was there, there a more substantive reason or a constitutional foundation to deny the legality of secession? In his first inaugural address, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed plainly the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. Lincoln also believed that in some mystical sense, the Union preexisted the states and famously that it was bound by mystic cords of memory. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison never explicitly endorsed secession, but rejected the idea that the Union preexisted the states. In the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, Jefferson and Madison respectively argued that the states through the federal constitution created the Union. I mean, this was the compact fact of the Constitution. So he's being, you know, even-handed here. Of course, Lincoln was way out of line in saying this. There was no justification for that at all. But he does say, For much of the 19th century, American politicians from a variety of regions believed the Union was what guaranteed American liberties. This is true. The idea that the federal government could be meaningfully oppressive and dis was dismissed because many Americans believed that foreign enemies and ideologies like Great Britain, the powers of Europe, and unnamed threats of creeping aristocracy and monarchy were more likely to tyrannize America and their liberties than their own elected federal Congress and president. Again, this is, uh, this is true. I mean, look, Jefferson, throughout his letters, he talks about natural rights and civil liberties and these kind of things. But he always believed that the real threat to that was unelected governments, that elected governments had perfect power to abridge natural rights as long as these people were elected. So election mattered to Jefferson. He wasn't an absolutist, nor was James Madison, nor was Sam Adams or John Adams. In fact, when you look at the uh, Shays' Rebellion and why, you know, when Sam Adams um, you know, said something about this, essentially it was these people need to be hung because they elected us to raise taxes. And so this is a Republican form. In 1776, we, weren't, we didn't have any election. Now we do. you got to pay the taxes, right? So this is where these people would have uh, this kind of caveat to absolute natural rights. Even slaveholders like Andrew Jackson saw the Union as the great preserver of American liberties, including the brutal but nonetheless legally recognized right to own human beings. Secession, therefore, was seen always as a revolutionary act and unionism as a conservative disposition. Emory Thomas, perhaps the best historian of the Confederacy during the latter part of the 20th century. I don't know about that. I mean, Emory Thomas, I think Charles Rowland is actually better. Charles Rowland's book on the Confederacy is really good. Um, Emory Thomas, that's eh, okay. I would disagree with, with Smith here. Noted that secession was revolutionary and that even a conservative revolution needed men willing to act in a revolutionary manner. Uh, I wouldn't say the secession was revolutionary. The, the, the Union was not necessarily conservative. Um, and this is why people did argue that. But secession was not revolutionary. The, rev the real revolution in 1860, as Southerners pointed out, was actually being affected in the North, not the South. The South was withdrawing to preserve what they saw as the original Constitution, not the North. They thought the North was full of revolutionaries who were trying to radically alter America, whether it was abolition or women's rights, or temperance, or something. They thought that they were radically trying to alter America. This is something that Dabney pointed out after the war was over. Even reactionary or conservative aims, in this case the aims of Southern slaveholders, terrified that Lincoln might curtail the ability to expand slavery, often resort to revolutionary means. Um, so, again, in Southerners' minds, they weren't being revolutionary. This is why they said we don't need a Declaration of Independence. It had already been done for them. This was simply just resuming their independent status. It wasn't revolutionary. This had already happened. 
The tendency to identify secession exclusively with the American experience in the Civil War is unhelpful. This is where I agree with Smith. Secession movements exist across the globe. Many have succeeded in the 20th and 21st centuries. Ireland, the Baltic Republics, Ukraine, and other post-Soviet states, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, and other countries exist because of secession movements. In our own day, we tend to use the language of revolution instead of secession for foreign independence movements, perhaps because of Americans' tendency to see the American Revolution, a successful colonial secession movement within the British Empire, as a historical good, and southern secession, an unsuccessful revolution, as historically bad. Americans tend to sympathize with foreign secession movements, but they view secession movements within the United States as insurrectionists and almost wholly negative. That statement is true. And he has this interesting paragraph here that I, I mean, it's, it's, I give Smith credit for this. He says, Bloomberg colonist Stephen Carter sees the reflective tendency to view secession as seditious as mistaken. Although Southern secession, he argues, was clearly insurrectionary, which isn't true. It hardly follows that everyone who advocates carrying, carving out a new nation from places of the U.S. is an insurrectionist. The historical presence of black separatist movements and the aforementioned secession movements in Western states should not lead people to be charged as insurrectionists. Of course, because these are leftist movements, right? Those are okay. It's just conservatives that can't do this. This is why I've said from the beginning, if you want secession to happen in America, it has to come from the left. It can't come from the right because the right will always be tarred with uh, some type of insidious motivation, you know, race, oppression, something. It has to come from the left. If it comes from the right, it's never going to happen. It will never happen. If it comes from the left, if the lefties need to get out because we've got Trump in office, well, then maybe this will happen. New Hampshire recently refused to bar from the ballot legislators who want their state to leave the U.S. entirely after a citizens group charged them with insurrection, something Carter sees as absurd. We shouldn't punish secession talk. Kudos for New Hampshire for understanding this. And of course, New Hampshire is libertarian. I mean, that's the free state movement. So you got a bunch of libertarians that have moved to New Hampshire, and they're trying to get New Hampshire to agree to independence. You also have Richard Kreitner, of course, who was a, a leftist, who wrote a book, Break It Up, about secession. Now, he's not open he, He's open to the, to the conversation. He's not against it. He doesn't think it should happen. But he understands where it's coming from. And he does, like Carter, he wouldn't think that this is insurrectionist. He also notes rightly that proponents of secession in California have not been charged with insurrection either. Today's America doesn't seem keen on punishing considerations of secession, but rightly it does not grant a right to violent secession. And this again is where, we, you know, secession should be a peaceful thing. It should never be a violent thing. The violence comes from opposition to it. Secession itself is not an act of violence. It's a peaceful thing. The South wasn't committing an act of violence by leaving the Union. Nothing happened until Lincoln became president and pressed. Then you had action. If You would not have had any war had the Lincoln administration simply allowed South Carolina to purchase Fort Sumter, Florida purchase Fort Pickens, and settle the debts. You wouldn't have had any kind of violence. He says, that may not help much for Californians or other Americans fed up with their state governments. The situation for secession within a state or from a state is different from the secession events that precipitated the American Civil War. There are, in fact, clear constitutional mechanisms for secession from a state, but that does not make secession more feasible, likely, or prudent. Secession from a state would have to be approved by the state legislature being seceded from and by the federal Congress. And the fact that it's never, it's never happened, West Virginia's secession from Virginia in 1863 was something of a constitutional mess, 
This I agree with. In fact, it never was done legally. Makes it clear that even the individual states do not look particularly kindly on secession as a vehicle for political redress. Now, again, I would say that within the states themselves, there has to be a movement for decentralization. But it, it, the likelihood of carving out new states is something that's far off. The states are not going to want to do it. Now, again, moving borders, that's a whole other issue. So why have populations in conservative red states embraced talk of secession from the United States? And why do conservative voters in blue states seem at least willing to consider it to escape invasive state policies? What about blue staters? What about lefties who want it? The answer lies in the fact that secession remains, at least in theory, something that might allow for political redress without resorting to political violence. While the unconstitutionality of secession is generally agreed upon by most scholars, again, he's repetitive there, but that's not, so what? I mean, most scholars don't really know what they're doing. Again, I mean, I, I believe this. Most of them just regurgitate whatever they think is fashionable, and they don't really study it much at all. When they start looking into these things, they come up with entirely different conclusions. Anyone that's really ever studied this stuff uh, knows, really studied it, knows that it's not necessarily illegal. Now, certain people might have been against it, but it's not illegal. It's not illegal. That may not matter to citizens who feel like oppressive state governments are no longer listening to them. Democratic supermajorities in the California legislature mean that rural and economically impoverished citizens might see secession as a necessary revolutionary act and not as a mere procedural or constitutional one. Throughout American history, there has lingered the proposition that citizens have certain rights reserved to them that aren't delegated to the states or to the union. It's unlikely that a county will actually secede from a state or a state from the, secede from the union. Nevertheless, Governments should heed their citizens' constitutional rights so that the boundaries of political union don't get tested in the 21st century. So his conclusion is, well, we need to list the states need to be receptive to complaints, petition, redress from these citizens so we don't see a situation like this. He is essentially saying that if they don't do that, you're going to see more talk of secession. So it is a call for states to do the right thing. All right. I found this piece to be fascinating. Again, a couple of problems I had with it, but overall, um, it's not a bad piece and worthy of your time to go through and consider. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.